Good morning, everyone. Good to be with you. Good to hear a, a yay sneak into the reading. I noticed that. Yay, though I walk. It was good. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we know that you came into this world and experienced the fullness of humanity and the fullness of the weakness of humanity. You went into the desert for us. You were tempted for us and you prevailed. Thank you for all that you've done for us. Please help us to see that you are our shepherd and that all our needs are met in you. We ask this for your name's sake. Amen. Good to be with you all for this third sermon in our series in times of need. We've been thinking about the different ways that we are weak and the different ways in which Jesus meets and helps us in our weakness. So firstly, we heard about how we experience hurt and shame. Can Jesus understand this? Yes. He died in humiliation on a cross for us. And he removed the shame of our sin by suffering the pain of God's judgment. Then uh, we also experience grief and sadness. Can Jesus understand this? Yes, he lost his dear friend Lazarus, and he assures us of a future without tears through the power of resurrection. Amidst the hurt and the shame, the grief and the sadness, we have real, solid, unshakable hope in the one who can heal our souls and raise our bodies to new life. Uh, this week, the weakness is anxiety, uncertainty, worry. Of course, at a superficial level, you hardly need me to uh, go into detail. We know that life is unpredictable, that we're not in control, no one knows the future, and it's, in a sense, these are natural reactions to those facts. Uh, all that's true. Uh, but why that is the case is worth getting a little more into. So before we think about how Jesus meets us in our weakness, let's define that weakness more carefully. Many people, as was said, know and cherish Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Here's the first thing that we really need to be clear on, and that is that to be human is to be in need. The American uh, psychologist, Abraham Maslow, he tried to explain human behavior in terms of a, 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 an ascending hierarchy of human needs. Uh, how right or wrong he is, I, I leave to others to work out, but he provides a, a useful catalog of our different needs. So we have physical needs, safety needs, uh, belonging and love needs, uh, the respect of other people, the opportunity to use our minds, uh, we need acquaintance with beauty and, and order. And we need meaningful goals. And of course, we have spiritual needs. We might quibble maybe with some of the exact details, but the basic picture is correct. To be human is to be in need. And we'd be super duper mistaken if we thought that humans are needy because of some fault in our design, some fault in creation. We're not needy because Adam sinned. We're needy because we're human and we were made that way. When we read Genesis 1, what do we find? We find a God of infinite power, goodness, and wisdom, making a world that is exactly fit for us and our needs. I'm not sure if you know the, 
the, um, the uber-rich tech billionaire and entrepreneur Elon Musk. I'm a bit of a fan. He's very eccentric. If you want a, a wild time, check out his Twitter account. Uh, but in any case, one of his goals is to make commercial uh, space travel to Mars possible. I think he's aiming for 2026. I'm certainly rooting for him. I hope you are too. Um, now, while Mars and, and other planets might be a possible destination in the future, I, I, I don't know. I, um, I don't think so, but perhaps there are sci-fi fanatics who will protest that. Um, but in any case, uh, the point is that we need the right kind of home, and Earth is just that. It's kind of like the Goldilocks situation, the, the, the porridge that's neither too hot nor too cold, but just right. Uh, we need a home, and God has made us a home that meets our needs. And uh, more basically, we, we need food at the everyday level. Uh, listen to God's words to Adam in Genesis 1. I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. Without food, we starve. It's worth keeping in mind when we think about our Lord's testing when he was hungry. Now, I know I'm stating the obvious, but sometimes the obvious needs to be stated. And what we're dealing with aren't merely natural facts, but a theological truth. Uh, we were made to be needy. We were made with needs. And these needs need to be provided for, which raises the question, who is doing the providing? Listen to the first verse of Psalm 23 again. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. In other words, the second statement is a consequence of the first. Uh, because the Lord is my shepherd, all my needs will be provided for. And then, movingly, David describes all the care that God bestows on his sheep, David, care for body and soul. David elsewhere writes, the Lord is trustworthy in all that he promises and faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, Lord, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. God's the carer of all creation, and we, we are the recipients of his many, many blessings. Blessings without which we'd surely die. But in no sense is God himself needy or lacking. Uh, to suppose that God needs something from us, something from the world he's made in order to complete him or sustain him is to begin to think idolatrous thoughts. Listen to what Paul says to the Athenians in Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by human hands and is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Hopefully it's clear now that God, as our great provider, is complete in himself. He has all that he needs within himself. Now, for our part, we always depend on the providence of God. So how does the anxiety fit into all of this? Anxiety comes in when we forget that the Lord is our shepherd, or we doubt that God can or will take care of us. Anxiety comes in when we forget the ultimate source of our provision. We can come at it this way. Uh, 
you have needs, I have needs, and God meets those needs. How? By giving us governments and markets, institutions, families, and our own individual resources. Uh, these are gifts from God, and we need them to meet our needs. But we'd be foolish to suppose that we can rely on these means of provision and then forget about the God who gives us them. So to elevate the government or the market or some institution or the family or indeed our own selves, to elevate ourselves as the ultimate source of provision and forget about God, well, that's a, that's a form of idolatry and presumptuousness. And it will breed anxiety because we're only human and others are only human and that's what our society is. We're weak, in fact, and needy. And all of us depend on the providence and care of God. I'm not sure about your experience of the last 18 months and counting. I think that expression is now outdated. It might be 20 months and counting. I, I don't know. But it feels like a, a long time and simultaneously a quick time. Uh, but the, the, the phenomenon in many ways has illustrated our neediness. And I'm not sure if you've done a, a post-mortem. So here's my attempt at a post-mortem. Um, with respect to our anxiety. And true, some of the concerns that we had might have been me measured in, in terms of a, a response to the things around us. Uh, but if you're like me, there were times when I was excessively worried, when I lost sense of perspective, when I forgot about the Lord who is our shepherd. So let me run through a range of experiences that people had. Physically, some people obviously feared the virus itself, that it would make them very sick, or um, kill them, um, or perhaps their family members or loved ones. Others had concerns about the vaccine, that it might cause them injury. Uh, politically, some were afraid that the government wasn't doing enough, should have done better. Uh, others thought that the government should have done perhaps less. Uh, socially, some were afraid that a minority was being uh, selfish and divisive. Others were afraid that their concerns weren't being heard and they were being dismissed. Uh, economically, some feared opening up would cause chaos, uh, whereas others thought that the lockdown itself was bringing about too much harm. Psychologically, uh, some were concerned that a, a large minority was being conspiratorial. Others feared that lots of people were going hysterical. Uh, spiritually, some felt that the church uh, got too close to disobeying the government, whereas others had concerns that the church was being overly comfortable and compliant. Now, this is what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that these concerns are right, these concerns are wrong, I'm abstaining from that. Uh, nor that these were the only feelings. I'm sure there were more complex feelings mixed in with that stuff that wasn't represented. It's obviously more complex. I only mentioned the variety of concerns in light of this phenomenon, felt by many, to illustrate how truly needy and prone to anxiety we can be. The heart of man, wrote Martin Luther, is like a ship upon a troubled ocean, driven about by winds from every corner of the earth. Care and fear, perceiving the approach of evils, impel it one way. Our grief and fear, under the influence of present distress, impel it another. Hope and presumption and the prospect of future success drive it yet another. The actual possession of prosperity and the breezes of security and of pleasure blow it yet another. Anxiety, uncertainty, worry. 
These come about when we give in to the temptation to doubt our shepherd and his provision. So what does our shepherd do about this? Look at Matthew 4. What does our shepherd do? He experiences human need in all its fullness and the temptation to doubt God's good provision. Listen to verses 1 to 2. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. What's going on here? Jesus is going to do what Israel in the wilderness failed to do. Jesus is going to trust his father when it seems like God isn't coming through. Jesus is tempted in three ways. First, on the brink of starvation, Jesus is approached by Satan, the tempter, who says in verse 3, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. For nearly six weeks, six weeks, Jesus has gone without food. No manna for him, no bread from heaven. But the whole point of the manna, Moses said, was that Israel might learn that God is the provider, that we live on the words that come from his mouth. Jesus shows that our physical needs are a sign of our spiritual dependence on God, our provider. Next, Jesus is tempted to uh, test God's provision for his mission in verses 5 to 7. Uh, Jesus started with a bang uh, in his infancy. He already experienced a serious attempt on his life with the uh, machinations um, and assassination attempt of Herod. And the road ahead was going to be difficult. It wasn't going to get easier. It ended with a cross. Uh, some people suggest that this temptation um, to perform a miracle in the heart of Jerusalem uh, might have instantly raised his profile and eased the way for his mission. But the writer to the he Hebrews uh, tells us that Jesus had to suffer outside the city gate. He had to go through the spiritual desert in weakness, not enjoy a magnificent reception in the capital city. He would not put God to the test. Finally, Jesus is tempted to quite literally make a deal with the devil, verses 8 to 10. He's tempted to receive a reward for giving worship to the devil. In a sense, all idolatry is a form of bargaining. I give honour and recognition to this or that idol, and I get, or I hope to get, something in return. But the Lord alone is God who has those privileges to give and take, not the devil who's a lying pretender. Jesus knew, he knew on good authority that his father would fulfil his promise to make the nations his inheritance and the ends of the earth his possession. And so he told the tempter to get on his bike. Anxiety, uncertainty, worry. Our saviour experienced human neediness in the extreme. He was tempted to doubt God's providence, but instead entrusted himself to his father. Now the point of the temptation is not primarily to be an example. Now this is crucial. The point of the temptation is for Jesus to do what Adam, Israel, and all of us here have failed to do, entrust ourselves to God completely and resist temptation. 
Jesus offered perfect obedience to the law. Jesus was made the perfect sacrifice by being tempted and prevailing in temptation, by suffering and trusting in suffering. Because the greatest need of human beings is in fact for a shepherd who saves. In a month's time on the day after Christmas, I'll turn 30 years old. Um, also be the day when my family and I begin attending a different church. So in light of my uh, relative aging and my imminent departure, I thought with this final sermon, I would share a word of encouragement that connects with our theme. Christ's sheep are weak sheep, but Christ is enough for them. We're weak sheep. I think of that excellent biblical poem in praise of God's word, Psalm 119, or the, the love and the longing and the earnestness and the resolution of the singer towards God and his word. And how does it end? I've gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servants, for I do not forget your commandments. Christ's sheep are weak sheep. Our bodies age, our minds weaken, burdens pile up, sin constantly besieges, friends leave the faith, the world hardens, and the devil is prowling. How can we not possibly be overwhelmed? How can we keep on going? The answer is very simple. Uh, because of who Jesus is for us. Uh, commenting on Psalm 23, Augustine got the application bang on. This is what the church needs to say and focus on. He writes, the church speaks to Christ. The Lord feeds me and I shall lack nothing. The Lord Jesus Christ is my shepherd and I shall lack nothing. Uh, to quote Richard Baxter, we need to screw that truth into our minds and work Christ into our affections. We are the flock of Christ. He is our shepherd. All our needs will be met. True, in this life there's suffering and it would be glib for me not to say otherwise or to pretend to have known a significant share of it. True, in this life God's provision will seem and seem quite really not to come through at times. But so it seems when our Lord Jesus was tempted in the desert, when he was rejected at Nazareth, when he shed tears in agony in Gethsemane, when he was abandoned by the disciples, when he was condemned by the Jews, when he was crucified under Pilate, and when he cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we might reasonably ask, where was God in all those profound moments? Again, the answer is very simple. God was being our shepherd. All that Christ did, he did for his sheep. All that Christ suffered, he suffered for his sheep. All that Christ won, he won for his sheep. All that Christ is, he is for his sheep forever and ever. And if God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not along with him 
graciously give us all things. Little flock, says our Lord Jesus, little flock, do not be afraid. For your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Each day, therefore, is a day of being followed by the shepherd's goodness and love until we dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.